Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the Corner Kick podcast, and it is going to be a big one. Before we get into today's activities, I am joined by a man who has already melted his FA Community Shield medal down into a fashionable pair of earrings, a la Hector Bellerin. It's Nathan Strauss. I am also joined by a man for whom following the Messi saga has felt like being slapped across the face by a scorned Latin lover in his own Argentinian <laughs> color novella. <laughs> it's Caleb Rose. You've captured my life experience very, very accurately. Oh, um, hello. Hello. <laughs> Caleb, it's been a big day for you. Uh, you could say yeah, that. Because yeah. we are going to begin with one of our, our new favorite segments on this show. Which might be coming to an end. <laughs> it might be coming to an end pretty rapidly. And that is Messy Watch. Nathan, take us to Messy Watch. Dun, da, 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 da. Bringing you the latest news on Lionel Messi. It's Messy Watch, presented by Corner Kick. Because we don't have a sponsor or a Patreon. Say, yeah. Maybe we should figure that out. <laughs> Maybe we should make a Patreon, actually. Or, no, it's, I was thinking, I want to get sponsored by Manscaped. That's always been <laughs> Anyways, Nathan, it's been a huge day for fans of Barcelona and fans of Messi. Take us to Messi Watch and the U-turn that has happened in the past six hours. Goal TV in an exclusive interview in a flip-flop clad Messi in his own house. It literally looked as if they just knocked on his door and were like, Messi, you want to do this interview right now? And he was like... There was like no furniture in the room. It was so weird. It was (laughs) super strange. (laughs) But yeah, he had like red Uh, shirts on and Adidas t-shirt and white flip-flops. It was, very, it was very messy. Like, you would never see Ronaldo in this outfit in an interview. But Messi announces that he is going to stay at the club. Um, he doesn't want to take Barcelona to court, presumably because he has too much admiration for the club itself. He name drops Bartomeu and says, this club, the way this club is run is a disaster and pretty much calls out Bartomeu. Um, but good news potentially for Barcelona fans because they'll have him for at least another year. Uh, but maybe bad news because it's a pretty damning indictment of where the club's at currently. Yeah, Caleb, let's get serious for a second. There's no real winners here. Messi is staying at Barcelona. However, we know that he had a poor interaction when he first met Kuman a few weeks ago. It's been a tumultuous 10 days. It's all played out publicly. It got a bit nasty in the mi- in, in the middle. This all coming after some accusations from the Catalan police targeting Bartomeu in a corruption scandal. We know that Bartomeu's position at the club is pretty much untenable at this point, but he is still remaining as the focal leadership of Barcelona. Messi said he's wanted to leave for the past year. He feels like he's in the right in trying to exercise that clause in his contract to get out of his Barcelona deal and leave the club this summer. This is an incredibly, this has turned into an incredibly toxic situation. Yeah, I mean, Messi essentially in this interview said that he is a prisoner at Barcelona because Bartomeu sort of seemed to have promised Messi that he could go because of that clause. But then because of the season extension, Bartomeu just decided that he was going to not let him leave and Literally, just because Messi actually cares about Barcelona, unlike Bartomeu, I would say, he refused to sort of drag the club into a difficult legal proceeding, which would have, I think, been very damaging both to the club, to Messi, and and sort of the relationship between. I I am, first and foremost, relieved. I mean, I'm relieved that Messi will be with the team next year. I think I would have been a little heartbroken to never see him in a Barcelona kit again. But I think most importantly from this interview, we've learned or everything that we've known has just been completely put into the public square. Sort of we, we talked about over the past few years, Barcelona seeming to have no plan um, in terms of developing the club, you know, sustainably. Messi talks about how they're just kind of like seem to be plugging holes wherever they popped up but with no sort of structure to it. Messi talking about how Bartomeu is just a terrible person. I hope the Catalan police find something damning about him. Um, clearly, 
<laughs> my my theory is that Messi tipped off the feds. However, however it happens, as long as it's you know real evidence against him, I, I will be happy. I, I think we've seen that that Bartomeu doesn't really stand for the values of the club, and that he needs to be voted out next year. Uh, fact, I think on the pitch, good for the club. Optically, it's kind of probably better than him leaving, but still not great. But definitely, all of these things that as Barcelona fans we can only kind of guess at what's happening behind the scenes we've now sort of had them confirmed that's good i guess but it's still you know painful to hear about how truly horrible things are behind the scenes at the club yeah i think the question nathan is what does messi really gain from this now following his his u-turn in many ways and do you think that this will affect his play on the pitch this season because we know that there have been numerous instances of players who are at clubs that they absolutely hate. They loathe being there day in and day out. I think most prominently, Alexis Sanchez just came out with an interview saying that from day one, he hated being at Manchester United and affected his play on the pitch. Caleb's already said that Messi feels like a prisoner at Barcelona. Do you think this will tarnish his his reputation, his standing not only with the club, but with the fans? and Or do you think that this is the, a move of absolute loyalty towards Barcelona for Messi? Oh, I, I think it's completely a move of loyalty. Um, and I think the fans pretty much unilaterally will back him on this one over Bartomeu, um, just because this isn't the first incident um, that has caused Bartomeu to lose the trust of the socios. They've called you know multiple votes of no confidence against him in the past. And it's pretty disappointing, I think, if you're a fa- even a casual fan of Barcelona to see that the club would be so willing to basically just ruin the relationship that they had with their best ever player. Um, and so I really think that it, it could end up being a positive thing if Bartomeu gets forced out because Messi can Messi can live under Komen. Messi is, you know, the best player in the world. Um, and where regardless of where Komen plays him, um, I think he will do fine, and I think he's a consummate professional, um, and that he won't, you know, raise a stink. And I, it's possible that if Barcelona get the right type of board in, that you don't you don't end up seeing Messi leave. You know, like it's entirely possible that the next generation of of leaders for Barcelona patch things over with Messi because I think he really does love the club. If things don't, and if Bartomeu manages to remain in power, or if things go south again, I think he'll definitely see Messi walk away from the club on his own terms after a waste of a year. Yeah, I think the timetable is set now, absolutely. They have until next summer to convince Messi to stay on with the Barcelona project and try and remedy this situation that he he feels like he's trapped in. I think we also saw Messi, the human being, come to the forefront a little bit with this interview. Obviously, he's not the most public person of all time. He's very much a private individual. You don't see him talk a lot in person. This was the most candid I've ever seen him. And the fact that he felt it necessary to do a 20-minute long recorded interview with Goal shows how uncertain he is about the future of Barcelona and how much he really did want to leave this summer. And I think it says a lot about the state that Barcelona is in right now following not only this summer, but following the Neymar deal, where I think the Neymar deal really shook Barcelona to their foundations in terms of, oh, like maybe we can't keep the best players in the world anymore and we need to go out and buy other teams' best players in order to reinforce the fact that we still are giants, both commercially and on the pitch. And we've seen that Messi is someone who values not really the fiscal arm of Barcelona and trying to be like the club with the most buying power and pull in the game, but I think he really values the moral identity of Barcelona, you know, the cultural effect that it's had on not only its fans, but also football. And I think this was going out to the world and saying like, hey, like I am Barcelona until I die. However, there are certain things about this club now in terms of our identity internally that I think need to be rectified if I'm going to stay here and continue to be fixed to the identity of the team. I think that's all definitely true. And I think, you know, this decision to initially want to go away and then the decision to sort of allow himself to be kept at Barcelona more so than a decision really to stay. You know, it it definitely was difficult for him. He talks about how, you know, his son was like really upset by it. Like this was not a decision he took lightly. Now that he's staying and the fact that he's, you know, wanted to leave and Bartomeu knew that for a year, I don't think it's going to affect his play on the field. Last year he had 
you know, 25 goals, 20 something assists in La Liga. First player to really do something like that in a major European league since Thierry Henry at Arsenal. You know, and once again, he 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 was a want away sort of privately the whole year. And I think considering that he's a kind of private personality, I think he is fully able to dial back in and give his all to the team because he does care about the team and the club. He just hates the current leadership. And that has definitely been very clear throughout the past several years, even though it's been in most sharp contrast recently. Hopefully, hopefully this is, is one of our last messy watch segments for a while. Yeah, until next um, summer, it looks like. <laughs> until least. next summer. Uh, so, you know, 10 months from now, maybe we'll have another conversation. But until then, we can switch our attention right now to the Premier League, a league that looked like it might have Messi uh, up until <laughs> a few hours ago, but will now no longer have Messi. But with this episode, we really want to start with some of the new teams, some of the bottom dwellers in the league, and maybe we can start with how we think Leeds are going to do in the Prem this year. Nick, if you want to take us to to Leeds. So I'm really excited about Leeds' business this summer. And yeah, just for context, we're going to start this episode with doing six teams that we think are going to be in and around maybe the relegation mix or plus the three promoted teams. In the next couple of episodes, we're going to cover all of the other Premier League clubs. But yeah, to kick things off with Leeds United, I am pretty excited about the business that they were able to get done in the past couple of weeks. We knew that they wanted to bring in a striker because we know that Patrick Bamford is a bit tried and tested on the Premier League stage and he's not the most clinical goal scorer. Even though from what I understand, Marcelo Bielsa likes the way he's able to instigate the press. But they did go and get, I think, the perfect complete forward for this team. I know you guys disagree a little bit with this transfer. They were able to go and acquire Rodrigo for 30 million pounds from Valencia, who obviously are in the midst of a fire sale and disarray right now. They were also able to go and get a promising young center back from the Bundesliga and Robin Koch to replace Ben White, who has recently signed a new extension with Brighton. They have signed Ilan Meslier, their goalkeeper who performed really well towards the end of last season from Lorient in Ligue 1. They've also signed Helder Costa on a permanent deal from Wolves for 16 million. What's clear to me is that Bielsa feels like he doesn't need a massive squad in order to succeed in the Premier League. He did need a few improvements from the team that performed so well in the championship, but I think we are going to see players like Luke Ayling, Calvin Phillips, Jack Harrison, who performed so well in the championship, executing Bielsa's style perfectly. I think that's going to translate very well. This is also a team that I don't think has to adapt their style. Like we saw last season, Norwich, they came out and they played that attacking style that won them the championship the season before, and they got really exposed defensively. I think Leeds United, they're really solid at the back. They have better players coming in with more organization than Norwich did in the Premier League last season. I think safety is going to be the primary objective. I think they're going to want to establish themselves as a Premier League team, but I certainly could see them maybe finishing in and around 10th, 11th this season. Yeah, and I, I definitely agree with that, Nick. I think the point about Jack Harrison is an excellent one. He played in every single game in the championship last year and started all but one of those. So 45 of 46 games, he was in that starting lineup. And it's pretty clear that now as he enters his third season with Leeds all on loan, that um, he's a pretty integral part for Bielsa. I'm also pretty excited to see how Helder Costa does um, after being deemed surplus to uh, Nuno Espiritu Santu's requirements at Wolves. But I, I want to push back on the signing of Rodrigo because as we've sort of discussed off the podcast, um, he did not have a particularly good year last year. And to pay $30 million for, I mean, admittedly, he is in the prime of his career in theory. He's 30 years old, right? Or 29 years 29, old. 29, yeah. Um, but he scored four league goals last year. And frankly, $30 million probably gets you, you know, a number of talented younger players who I think might be better suited for the Bielsa way. And I know that Rodrigo must have been high on Bielsa's wish list if he convinced the board to spend that much money. But I really, really am not as impressed with this signing as you are. It's a terrible signing. It's a truly terrible signing. Rodrigo has not really been that prolific recently. So he spent, what, six years 
in La Liga with Valencia. He only reached double digits once in the 2017-2018 season when he had 16 goals. And he only scored more than six goals other than that time once. And that was when he had eight in the 2018-19 season. He is not a clinical striker. He's not a bad player, but he's just not going to produce a lot of goals. And I think when I look at Leeds and how they performed in the championship, they only had one player with more than with double-digit goals, and that was Patrick Bamford. Pablo Hernandez, who's 35, was their second top scorer with nine. This is a team that needed someone that can just put the ball in the back of the net 11 times in the Premier League next year. Rodrigo is not that player, and their existing squad it doesn't have someone who's going to be able to do that. I don't know how well this is going to work out. I mean, there must be some reason Bielsa really wanted him. But it's also weird to me that considering the fire sale at Valencia, they couldn't get him for cheaper. Um, so all in all, I think this is bad value and probably not going to solve the glaring problem with Leeds' squad heading into the Premier League. But I think you have to look at the way Marcelo Bielsa sets up to play, right? Patrick Bamford is far more of a complete forward than an actual goal scorer. I think it's a little bit reminiscent to Roberto Firmino at Liverpool in the fact that he is able to drop in a little bit and supply the likes of Jack Harrison and Helder Costa to do their thing on the wings. I think why not go and get a player like Rodrigo, who is essentially, maybe he's not as prolific a player as you might need in the Premier League. I think you guys are absolutely correct in that. But I think you look at the job that he does for Valencia and the job that he did against Germany for the Spanish national team when he was starting up top for them. Why not go and get someone who you know is an elite, complete forward, someone who is established at an upper level of the game and who can tie the play together for a team that isn't super reliant on goal scoring as much as they are on organization and team play. Maybe 30 million is a, a bit too much for a player who's not going to return a lot of statistical value, but I certainly think Bielsa is right in going out to get someone who is perfect for his system. And let's be honest, a more well-rounded player than Patrick Bamford is going to be at the Premier League level. I, th I think it is perfect for the system that Bielsa is going to set out to play. Nathan, do you want to take us to a team that beat Brentford in the playoff final? They're back in the Premier League once again. We just can't seem to get rid of them. It's Fulham. Fulham, it seems like Craven Cottage is always there or thereabouts. I'm always happy to see another London team um, in the Premier League as well. And Craven Cottage is one of the best grounds in the Premier League now, I think. Not too much business from them. They got Anthony Knockart on a permanent deal. He was on loan with them last season. He's one of those players who seems to be very good for the championship, but not quite good enough for the Premier League. It's kind of actually like Patrick Bamford, but definitely a valuable squad player for this team. And they signed young American Anthony Robinson for $1.9 from Wigan, although they ended up paying an extra £100,000 to help Wigan with their uh, administration issues. They got Mario Lamina from Southampton on loan, who did not have a very successful year last year on loan uh, in Turkey. And they signed young midfielder Harrison Reed from Southampton as well for £6 million. Not too many departures for them either. I personally see this Fulham team as being a candidate for the relegation battle. I don't, I'm not entirely sold on Alexander Mitrovic. I'm not entirely sold on the depth of this team. What do you guys think on this one? I agree. I think that this team is set for relegation as much as I do love Fulham. I don't think, really, Mitrovic, talking about goal problems. I mean, Mitrovic, was he the top scorer in the championship last year? I think he was um, with 26 goals. But unless he can score 16 or 17 in the Premier League, I don't think this team has enough firepower to go up. Like Tom Kearney was their second top scorer last year with eight. Um, and, and that's not going to, that's not going to be enough in the Premier League. Uh, Knockert, however you say his last name, only had three goals. So he's not going to add much more. Anthony Robinson, obviously is a defender. This team could have a very, very difficult time, um, unfortunately. And there's just not a lot of support up there for Mitrovic who might be angling for a move back into kind of a mid-table obscurity kind of team. Honestly, it's kind of shocking that Mitrovic is 25 years old because 
it seems like he's been around the Premier League forever. Of course, he was signed by Newcastle as a 19-year-old. Something like that, 20-year-old. Yeah, so I mean, he's definitely a talented player and capable of scoring goals, but this is ostensibly the same side that got relegated two years ago. Like, there have been very, very little structural changes, and for that reason, I think that they are the candidates to finish 20th, actually, this year. One of their big attributes that they do have coming into this season is their manager, Scott Parker is he was appointed as the caretaker the last time they were in the Premier League and then they got relegated. He kind of had no real chance to improve their standing, but he has shown in the championship, which is a huge qualifier, that he is a extremely capable manager who's able to get these players on his side and he was able to do it very quickly. And I think Joe Bryan is a capable defender who I think will be very good at the Premier League level. level. He was obviously the person who scored the two goals who sent them up to the Prem in that championship playoff game. They have pace, which I think is an incredible asset to have for any team coming up on the wings in the likes of Cabano and Bobby Reed, who I think are two players who they're not going to provide much statistically, but I think they are going to be a handful for defenses coming up. And I think this is, like you guys were saying, this is the proving ground for Mitrovic. Like this is the year where he needs to show that he can produce numbers at the top level. And if he can't do that, then I think Fulham are going to be in trouble. I think they're a bit more of a cohesive unit than you guys were giving them credit for. I certainly think they are going to be relegation candidates. I'm not so certain that they're going to finish 20th. I think there's another team that I have marked out. Fulham are going to be in and around the relegation zone this year. All right. Do we want to move on to the third and final of the newly promoted teams? Another sort of Premier League stalwart for a number of years in West Brom. So we wanted to have our theme song composer and our dear friend, William Patel, who is a massive West Brom fan, uh, to come on the pod today and give us his thoughts on West Brom coming up to the Premier League. He is occupied today. He's got some business to take care of. But he did send me some extensive notes on West Brom and his thoughts about their squad coming into the season. So I'll run those down, and then we can dissect our good friend William's thoughts about his baggies coming up into the Premier League. He says that all he wants is for West Brom to stay up. He's not looking for Champions League qualification, as he put it. Uh, he just wants he just wants 17th or higher. He just wants to reestablish the club at the Premier League level. And the, the players that Billich is targeting this window, and the thing that we should point out is that the transfer window extends until October this season. So I think there's a good chance that we're going to see a lot of these teams strengthen towards the end of September at the beginning of October after the season has already kicked off, which is a bit different from last season when it closed before the start of the opening day. He thinks that they're going to be a little bit crap against the bigger teams just because their squad is not conducive to holding it together against sides that play like very fluid football. However, he thinks that Billich is targeting some really good transfers from abroad and the player that he really wants to sign is Nikola Vlasic, mm. formerly of Everton, now playing a Croatian attacking midfielder playing at Seska Moscow, I think. And that's the guy Bilic is really after to bolster that attacking lineup. And he thinks that Pereira is going to be the player to watch coming up from the championship. And I actually agree with him. I think Pereira, I have drafted him on fantasy, <laughs> and I think he's going to be electric this season. And I think actually West Brom are going to stay up just barely this season lads I do I do as well Nick and you mentioned Mateus Pereira he was last season's uh player of the season for West Brom and he joined permanently he's 24 years old so I mean he's this could be a real breakout season from him on the other wing though West Brom as of 30 minutes ago just announced the transfer of Grady Diagna from uh West Ham for 18 million and he was on loan got eight goals for them in 30 games last year uh a very very promising player Congolese uh, and I think they're going to be trying to maybe get a little bit more pace on the wings. Certainly when you look at their their striking options, it's not great. You have a bunch of sort of championship level players like Hal Robson Kanu, Charlie Austin, Ken Sahor. I do really like Slavin Bilic as a manager. Um, and Sam Johnstone in goal, formerly of uh, United, I believe, is pretty decent as well. So if they can get a couple more midfielders in, uh, I think this team can definitely stay up, maybe finish around like that 16th or 15th place. Yeah, I like this team more than I like Leeds or Fulham in terms of probability of staying up. I think they just have 
a little more experience, especially players with Premier League experience like Jake Livermore, like Kieran Gibbs, Charlie Austin, who is probably more of a championship quality player, but has had good years in the past with Southampton. So I like this team. I like Slavin Bilic. So they're definitely my pick of the three teams for survival. Yeah, I think you're right, Nathan, in that they definitely need to sign a striker. I know that they've been linked with Carlin Grant from Huddersfield, who's a promising young English talent, and he can probably produce something for them at the Premier League level. But I think there is a case of, we know how Robson Kanu can do it somewhat on the Premier League. He's aging a little bit. We know that Charlie Austin can also provide some goals. But I certainly think they need a bit more of a pacier option, maybe create some space for the likes of Austin, Zahor, and Halrups and Kanu to finish off chances. But I certainly think they're in a good position, like Caleb was saying, they have a lot of Premier League experience coming into the season already. Absolutely. So that wraps up our discussion of the promoted teams. But now we can turn to some of the bad teams from the Premier League last year. (laughs) What a nuanced way. What a nuanced way to put it. Some of the bad teams. Well, (laughs) shall we start (laughs) with Aston Villa, who finished 17th last season by the skin of a Grealish goal. By the skin of Skyhawk Technologies. (laughs) And a malfunctioning Hawkeye. They managed to stay up ahead of Bournemouth last season. Uh, They have added Nottingham Forest right back Matty Cash, who was always a career mode go-to player for me. He's someone who can play in a myriad of positions for Aston Villa. He can play at right back, left back. He can play in the midfield as well. So I think this is a good acquisition for Aston Villa, who honestly, they don't really need to add much to the squad. This is a talented squad that they spent upwards of 100 million pounds on last season in acquiring some talented players. And I think what they need is another season in the Premier League to hopefully make sure all of those parts fit together finally. And Jack Grealish is staying on with the project. I don't think any club really has the financial power to take him away from Villa right now. And he'll be a huge boost to their campaign to stay in the Premier League season again. Yeah, and this is a West Brom team that got pretty unlucky with injuries. Aston Villa, towards, bro. Oh, shoot. This is a, <laughs> sorry. This is, a, this is a Villa side that got pretty unlucky with injuries following the, re- the following Project Restart. They had already lost Wesley, their, I mean, I guess their marquee signing of the previous summer to a knee injury in December. Um, and he's going to be out at least for another month or two. But if he can get back in, in the lineup, I think he's probably their most talented player up top. They still have Mbwana Samata, who's, you know, was pretty decent for them last year. Uh, and then obviously keeping hold of Grealish, I think they, more than any other team, were positively affected by the COVID uh, financial uh, implications because they priced him at 80 million. And when 80 million is getting you Kai Havertz, which I guess we'll talk about next time. I mean, keeping hold of Grealish is so important for them. Uh, and yeah, I mean, Nick, I think you hit it square on the head. They also had uh, both Bjorn Engels and Ahmed El Mohamedi were out due to injury as well. So if they can stay injury free and maybe add one more piece, uh, depending on their finances, I think this is a team that could very easily look to build on their survival last year and maybe shoot for a few places higher this coming season. We'll see. Um, It's still possible that Grealish could go, Um, although each day that that transfer doesn't happen seems less likely. Definitely have not heard any rumors in the news. And unfortunately for him, perhaps his career might be going a little Zaha-esque in that the club values him far more than outsiders do. um, And so that makes it hard for them to actually move the asset. Um, But for the villains, they'll they'll take that any day. Let's move on to Brighton and Hove Albion, who finished 16th last season. Perhaps a bit disappointing for them to have finished so low in the table. However, they have acquired a few big key acquisitions. And I think one contract extension that is going to help them along immensely this season. Plus, we know that Graham Potter is a talented coach coming up from Swansea last season. I think another year at Brighton is going to do him a world of good in terms of organizing this team for what he wants to do. Adam Lalana, Premier League winning Adam Lalana, has joined on a free from Liverpool. I think that's a massive acquisition for Brighton. Someone who is proven to have done it at the highest levels of the Premier League can come into their squad and be that sort of talisman for them this season in the midfield. They signed Joel Veltman for 900k, which is an extremely good deal. Someone who's 
got a variety of experience at Ajax, someone who is a talented player. We know he's played in the Champions League and he's won Eredivisie titles. And I think the transfer or pseudo transfer that is going to be so key to them this season is Ben White staying at the club, signing a four-year contract with the team, and he is going to be the heartbeat of that central defense alongside Lewis Dunk this season. I think Brighton, they're a team that could also, like Aston Villa, they probably have aspirations of pushing up a little bit higher in the table. They've done some shrewd business this window, keeping Ben White and adding some key pieces going forward. They've actually had some of the more interesting transfers this summer and they've made made a profit too so they were able to get Alana Veltman, Lars Dendonker, the young player from Club Bruges who his uh his picture if you google him his Wikipedia picture is actually his football manager stats which I think is pretty funny. <laughs> I saw that too Caleb I saw that too. Uh, so, he is he is Leander Dendonker's younger brother in okay. case you were wondering. And and he's Dendonker. a real effort. FM Wonder Kid. Absolutely. <laughs> 2020. He's, he's got that uh, stamp of approval there. And, and I like Dendonker at Wolves. So if he's anything like that, I think that's a positive. Yeah. For comparing him directly to his brother, hey, this is a great move. Yeah. Um, at the same time, they've, you know, they've had some interesting moves away. So Martin Montoya obviously went back to Spain. Uh, Kanaka, we already talked about. Aaron Mui, interestingly, going to Shanghai SIPG. That's interesting. Glenn Murray being loaned out, which is a little sad. I feel like they should just let him retire at the club. Um, <laughs> right? Like, why loan out a 36-year-old? But that's neither here nor there. I think this team's going to stay up. I really want to see more of Adam Lalana. I miss watching him play. We'll, we'll see how it goes. But I Dude, good, I'm so excited to watch Adam Lalana play again week in, week out. He is such a silky player, and I think he deserves to play in a team that values him as much as Brighton probably do. Yeah. So only yeah. good things to say, really. Yeah. And just to clarify that Aaron Moy transfer, the reason that he went to uh, the Chinese league is because he had a clause in his contract that let him go for 4 million pounds. If a Chinese team came begging because he's Australian, he counts as an Asian player by Chinese super league standards. Love that So, so he's a, uh, He's very valuable. I actually think that the signing of Veltman from Ajax might be the best value for money transfer I've seen in the Premier League uh, in a number of years. You're talking about a player whose market value was between 10 and 20 million, a player who started for the Dutch national team uh, today, a player who has almost 300 appearances for Ajax over the course of 10 years, going for under a million pounds. That's like, that's ridiculous to me. I mean, frankly, I actually think Veltman would start at Chelsea. Uh, and I think it's possible. Okay, that's that just Veltman not, that's not true. That's, that, I, that, I mean, that's I incorrect. Mean, I it, you're talking about a player who had an average rating of 7.4 last year. In the Eredivisie? Um, I think, I think Veltman you're not going to have a 7.4 average rating <laughs> in the Eredivisie. <laughs> okay, but continue, Nathan. Continue. But, the, but point being, I think this is a fantastic transfer for them. I also see Brighton staying up because I think they're an incredibly gritty team that just don't concede goals. Um, that I is also that, untrue. I don't think that they're a particularly <laughs> exciting team to watch, though. So, Bro, um, what do you mean they don't concede goals? <laughs> they finished in 16th. Yeah, dude, they're a vintage English team. They're a <laughs> like 4-5-1 team. They're not an exciting team to watch. So wait, are you praising Brighton or are you not praising Brighton? Like, what are you doing right now? Yeah, I'm getting mixed messages yeah. here. <laughs> I don't uh, okay, so, 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 so the mixed messages are they're a team that's too good to get relegated, but not good enough to make them anything special. Um, and I think that they'll be in and about the relegation battle until like March, and then they'll pull away a little okay, bit. Okay, so you think they're going to finish like 15th? Yeah. Which exactly. is where they finished. Yes. They finished 16th. 16th. Okay, so yeah, they're, they're going to improve. Gonna, yeah. They're yes. going to improve. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that is... Brighton, and then maybe rounding out our discussion, we can talk about Crystal Palace. Crystal Palace have made my favorite transfer of the entire window so far. Loaning out Jason Lokilo to Doncaster. Uh, incorrect. That was, <laughs> that was also a free transfer. It wasn't even a loan. Yeah. <laughs> so for all you Lokilo fans out there, I'm sorry. No, obviously we're talking about the signing of Abrici Etze from QPR for $16 million. I think this guy, along with Pereira, was probably the best attacking player or attacking midfield player in the championship last season. He's 22. He's got an immense skill set and quality. 
He can pick out a pass. He's incredibly quick. He's incredibly tidy. He can come off the wing as well. In fact, I think he's probably best coming off of the left wing for Crystal Palace. Uh, I think he is going to lift the burden immensely on Wilfred Zaha, who I think was single-handedly carrying this team for large portions of last season. I also think that with Roy Hodgson, he knows how to organize any... <laughs> literally, I think he could probably like organize the three of us in a defense and figure out <laughs> figure out a way to keep Palace in the Premier League. So I'm not super concerned that he's not gone out and gotten a lot of defensive acquisitions, although signing Nathan Ferguson from West Brom is a shrewd move. He is also a young, talented defender. But I think Eze is going to light the Premier League alight for a team like Palace who don't have many high-profile attackers. And it's going to be someone who Wilfred Zaha can count on to carry this team a little bit farther than they got last season. It's kind of amazing that Palace finished 14th last year. I mean, they had an anemic offense and an incredibly average defense. Like, they probably really deserved to finish closer to the relegation zone than they did. At the same time, I think they have a lot of players in their squad who have either underperformed or who actually are just much worse than I think they are. So like Zaha, right, he was carrying the team, but he only had four goals and three assists last year when we know he's really worth eight to 10, I would say, on an average year. Then you have players in their squad that have like theoretically kind of bigger names, like Benteke, who's been awful for years, but like still in the back of your mind, you feel like he could be a scorer. Um, You have someone like Max Meyer, who was the big question last year when he got signed was, you know, is he going to actually do something? And the answer was no. But I still think there's there's the the, the seed of a quality player there. Um, and so I think this team does have potential. And I think the signing of Eze, as you said, could help unlock it, especially if they reduce the burden on Zaha. But at the same time, I think that the team, in terms of their finishing, did overperform last year. And so I expect them to play more true to form, but finish worse, if that makes sense. So I can see them finishing 15th or 16th, despite playing better on the face of it. I actually think that Palace are going to go down this year. I think this is going to be the end of uh, Palace's stay in the Premier League. And I know that might be a, a sort of hotter take than some of the other ones that we've seen so far, but this team just has not gotten any better. Um, and I think eventually their luck is just going to run out. And well, as much as I like the signing of Eze, I don't think that it's anywhere near enough. Um, and you're looking at a team powered by, what, now a 33-year-old Luka Milivojevic, right? No, he's 30. Um, okay, a 30-year-old Luka Milivojevic. No, oh, he's 29. Never mind. I'm just wrong. You are fake news. But you're looking at a team powered by he's Luka Milivojevic. He's and, the Benjamin Button of Serbia. <laughs> right. This team is just so uninspiring. It's so uninspiring. I think that's their best quality, though, shockingly enough, is that Roy Hodgson is such a classic Premier League coach that I don't think there's any chance that this team goes down. I think maybe they'll be in the relegation zone, but I think he just knows the division so much and so well that it's going to propel this team to safety no matter who they bring in. Like I said, this dude could set up like four bricks in a row and like still find a way to like keep a clean sheet against Burnley. Like this guy knows the Premier League. He was terrible at Liverpool. At Liverpool. He's probably one of the worst managers to ever coach at Liverpool because that's not his level. His level is keeping teams in the Premier League and doing it so successfully because he's so knowledgeable about the division. I don't know. It seems like it seems like all of the teams around them have gotten a lot better or have had better structures in place. Like if you asked me to describe Crystal Palace's style of play, it's literally get the ball to Zaha and then try and get just like 40 crosses. I mean, it's a four five one. It's very flat. I know. It's just, it's, I really worry that they're one Zaha injury away from finishing, like actually finishing 19. I mean, that's true. I think that's true. Hopefully as they can, then in that case, I think it's going to be, a little bit too much for Eze to produce something all by himself. I think you can't expect a player to come up from the championship and do it all on his own. I think he's absolutely going to need to strike up a good rapport with Wolf Zaha in order for Palace to have any success this season. It certainly won't be Eze. Jesus Christ. All right. That was well, bad. I guess we have to move on now because there's no coming back from that. <laughs> I was just trying to inhabit Nathan when I said that. 
we're gonna um, two Nathans is exactly what we do not need on, <laughs> on this show. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. We're gonna be coming back to you next week with the next seven Premier League clubs. We're gonna tackle the mid table of the division. We're gonna be talking about teams like Southampton, like Wolves like Sheffield United, but we wanted to end our episode today with talking about something that we have been eagerly anticipating, and that is the release of All or Nothing Tottenham Hotspur. The fly-on-the-wall Amazon documentary has been released. It chronicles the fall of Maurizio Pochettino towards the beginning of last season, and the incoming whirlwind surrounding Jose Mourinho's first year at the North London Club. We have all seen the first episode. We are going to give our impressions of everything regarding the show, storylines, characters. I guess they're not characters, they're real people, but characters, our impressions of the way things went down in the first episode. I want to open with this question. In my opinion, after the sacking of Pochettino, and he's like barely covered in the documentary. You know, like he he he's a focal point for the about the first seven minutes and then he gets binned off and we don't see him or they don't mention him ever again. He's like a very and you can also tell that he like wasn't a huge fan of having cameras on him at all times. Do you think that part of the Jose hire had to do with the fact that they needed a personality to carry this documentary? I mean, okay, here's what I'll say. It definitely doesn't hurt for a documentary to have a character like Jose in it because he is the type of person that causes tension, that, you know, is very blustery. He, he's a good character to study. He is the main character of this documentary. I mean, at least the first episode. I think, though, it's hard for me to believe that that was even close to, like, a central decision-making point for Tottenham Hotspur because... The documentary itself is still secondary or tertiary to, you know, how they perform on the field. And, you know, at the time when they sacked Pochettino, Tottenham were like deep in like mid-table. And it was looking like even a top six, let alone top four, would be sort of far out of sight. So I think when they hired Mourinho, they were like, this is a man that's won trophies everywhere. He's available. And then as an added benefit he definitely is going to make our documentary better. But I don't think it was like documentary first. Nathan, were you surprised at the lack of Maurizio Pochettino in this documentary and the fact that they transitioned to the Mourinho era so quickly? And what did you make of the first episode? So I actually think that the reason for that is because Pochettino was generally unaware that he was going to be binned off, as you said. And I don't think that the lines of communication were particularly great. And I, I don't really blame Pochettino for being set, for for being more secure in his job than he really was because he is their greatest ever manager in the Premier League era. And I think that he had, he had earned a little bit more time than he was given. That being said, I used to really dislike Jose Mourinho um, because of his sort of beefs with Arsene Wenger over the years. But he is hilarious. Like this guy is just so funny. Um, and sometimes without meaning to be funny, he seems like he's genuinely a decent guy. It's clear how much he loves soccer. I think one of my favorite little Easter eggs is when you could see that he had football manager on his desktop during one of his media briefs. So that I found particularly interesting. It's obviously hard for me to watch too much of this or without any real bias, because as an Arsenal fan, I just don't have too, too much interest in like the behind the scenes of our greatest rivals. Um, especially when they've been outperforming us uh, of late. But it's always interesting for me to see how sort of locker room politics get played out. Um, and of course, we, we don't know how much of the backroom stuff they actually were able to produce and put out. Obviously, the club presumably has final say over uh, what we do and do not see. I, I think the the we talked about it before the podcast, but his watching Mourinho interact with various players, sort of asking how... Tanganga's name is pronounced and then him sort of diatribing about how people mispronounce his own name, watching him call Dele Ali lazy player uh, or in training, uh, I think is pretty amusing. I personally think that 
if I were an executive at a club, I would never want a camera crew to be following my team around. Um, and when you're having a down year like Spurs are, it's guaranteed to be good television, but I'm not sure that it's always good politics for the club. So I'll definitely watch the next couple of episodes with great trepidation. But all in all, I'm not entirely sure that the trajectory of having these camera crews behind the scenes is a positive thing for for the Premier League. I disagree. I think it's immensely positive because I love soaking in every second of these behind-the-scenes, fly-on-the-wall situations. I think it's interesting because we've always wanted to know what being under Jose Mourinho is like somewhat. We know that he kind of creates this cult of personality surrounding himself whenever he is appointed at the helm of a new job. And I think it's really interesting to see how he sets out to set like his own standards on the team. And I think what was really interesting to me was his interactions with Harry Kane. I think when he came in, it was first reported that maybe he had a little bit of a disconnect with Kane. But we can see that that's clearly not the case, Caleb, in that like they had that one-on-one conversation where they both expressed that they wanted to be winners and stuff like that. But then we also saw that Mourinho can maybe rub some people the wrong way. Like maybe it's not the best idea to call Deli Ali like a lazy player on the first day of training and stuff like that. So for me, it was certainly eye-opening to see how Jose tries to get people on his side, how he approaches coming into a team in the first week or so. You know, I'm someone who has never been the biggest fan of Jose Mourinho, usually because he's on the other side of teams that I support. Um, But I think it was really interesting to see his approach um, and his sort of self-awareness about what he's doing. He's incredibly um, self-aware. That was the thing I was shocked about, was that he knows exactly what people think of him. Right. Um, I think one of the scenes I found interesting was uh, he was in, in his office. I think it was a scene It was supposed to be one of his like first moments in his office, and he set it up, and he's sitting, and he's writing the players' names down sort of ominously uh, on, on this sheet. And there's a TV in his office playing, you know, the BBC or Sky Sports or something. And they're talking about the Mourinho thing. And one pundit's like, oh, like, he's past it and blah, blah, blah. And Mourinho, you know, stands up and flips off the TV and says, you know, off. And I I think that's something that is interesting to see. I mean, it's interesting to see what irks this person. It's interesting to see how he thinks about the team. It's interesting to see another one of my favorite scenes was when... One of his assistant coaches came in and was like uh, giving him like little tidbits about like each player and their like personality. And, you know, he was like, Musa Sissoko is like the man in the dressing room. And then there's just kind of this like one beat pause and Rio is just like. Um, (laughs) That was perhaps my favorite scene in the entirety of, of the episode, because like there are clearly it's one of those things where like Mourinho says it himself, like rarely does he take jobs halfway through the season. So it's one of those things where it's like Mourinho wants to create that atmosphere that he thinks leads to success, but he's got to do it on the backdrop of a team that already has a lot of chemistry. So it's about like, how does that chemistry work in contrast to the kind of atmosphere that Mourinho wants to create? And I think that's going to be the real driving conflict going forward with the show. Right, absolutely. It's just a different... He's used to being able to sort of from the outset establish his authority, but he's the new guy this time. And I think that's definitely, at least from the first episode, you know, it's entitled new signing and and he is the new signing. Uh, And that's definitely not the position he normally faces. And it's definitely interesting to see how he assimilates into that role. So all in all, great episode. What did you guys make? Just one last thing. What did you guys make of the way that Daniel Levy came off in this episode? Because I think he's also a person who we rarely hear from publicly. And I think certainly this documentary was an exercise in trying to get us to see that Daniel Levy does, (laughs) or at least want to come off as caring quite a bit about the heartbeat of Spurs and not just coming off as sort of a calculated, ruthless businessman. I think there was that one scene where he he said that like he had become incredibly close with Mauricio Pochettino and they had vacationed together. But then there was also like that 
narration was happening when they were at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers game. I guess they were playing for the first time at Tottenham's new stadium. You could tell that the relationship was not that. So it's either a case of that he's he's made up the fact that he's like this incredibly human, uh, emotional, empathetic individual and that the people beneath him don't see that or that he was just straight up lying to the camera, which I think is entirely possible because he wants himself to be pictured in this empathetic light as an executive. I also thought it was a little weird, his relationship with Pochettino, at least what they showed, which at that point was like years into it, felt really jilted. Like it, it was confusing to me, like of all the moments to show of Pochettino, which once again, they didn't really give him that much time. They gave like a full 30 seconds to Daniel Levy inside the like executive box, like rubbing Pochettino's clothing and being like cashmere and then Pochettino was like cashmere and it was like <laughs> it was like these people had like never met before almost it was yeah. really strange it was super strange I, I almost sort of wonder if he's like a lone wolf kind of figure actually in the back room because you don't really ever hear too much about like Spurs's board or any sort of behind the scenes stuff and we know that Spurs before Pochettino under Levi or Levy sorry we're churning through managers left and right. It's like one of those things where just kind of like he says he was incredibly close emotionally to Pochettino and it was a decision that he didn't want to make. But then those scenes between him and Pochettino, it seems like their relationship was pretty distant. I guess there are those scenes where like he comes into Mourinho's office and he like asks how Mourinho is doing and Mourinho explains like his impression of his first day of training and which like he's like Deli is an incredibly lazy player. Harry Kane is a winner. So it's one of those things where like maybe he was hoping that this documentary would paint him in a way that's like a bit more human, but it's just not working out that way. But all in all, great first episode. I look forward to having the opportunity to discuss the new ones with you guys in future pods. We are going to come back to you next week with a further breakdown of a couple more Premier League teams. Like I said, we are also going to talk a little bit more about Tottenham All or Nothing and any other big transfer stories that go down this has been Corner Kick. I've been Nick Vinden. Caleb Rhodes. Nathan Strauss. And we will see you all next time.